And Father, we agree this morning that every promise you make, you keep. Father, every word that you've ever given us in the scriptures will never, ever fail. We know that you are the faithful God. And Father, we agree with the words Perry read a moment ago, your loving kindness, O Lord, your steadfast love does indeed reach to the heavens. Your faithfulness is as the skies. Your righteousness is like a mighty mountain. And Father, your judgments are a great deep. Father, we don't always understand your ways. We don't always recognize what you're up to in the moment. But Father, you have shown us again as a church family this week. You've even reminded many of us again this morning that you are faithful, that you listen to our prayers. Father, that you take care of your people one way or another. And Father, we want to believe that even if this week, particularly for Hannah, had gone in a different direction, that we would still be able to say, but our God is good, our God is faithful, and our God sustains us at all times. Father, we rejoice in who you are. We rejoice as we're going to see here in a few moments in your word, Lord, that you have demonstrated your love for us. We know that you're a loving God. Your word declares that you are a loving God, but you demonstrated your own love for us. And Father, while we were still sinners, while we were lost and separated from you, deserving of nothing but wrath, you sent your son. Your son who laid down his life, paid the price at the cross so that each and every one of us here this morning could be forgiven and go free. And Father, we rejoice in that this morning. And Father, now having sung your praise, Father, having really truly recited your goodness, declared the deeds of the Lord in the congregation of the people, Father, now we turn our attention to your word, not because there's a preacher up here who has brilliant things to say, but because the word of the Lord stands forever. It cuts to the very depth of our heart. It instructs and leads and guides in the way that we should go. And so, Father, we ask now as we go to your word, that as always, you would, in fact, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. That it wouldn't be my voice we hear, that it would be yours. You would guide us in truth, that you would guard us from error, that you would deliver us from distraction. And Father, even in these remaining moments together, help us to see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we dig into your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we dig into your word. And Father, when we leave here in a little while, Father, I believe it's going to be rejoicing. We've already begun down that track. And Father, I want to do nothing other than on the authority of your word to build upon it. May it be rejoicing, Father, that we have a Savior who came to rescue us, that we have a God in heaven who loves us. We have a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us and will show us the way in which we should go. So, Father, we give you this time now, and we ask that all of it would honor Jesus, Jesus whom we love, Jesus whom we serve, and Jesus in whose name we pray, as all God's people said together, amen. I want you to take out your Bible and meet with me with whatever powers of concentration you have left this morning, whatever bandwidth you have in order to, to hear and process and respond as we are going to continue what we began last Sunday, many of you were here, some of you were not, but last Sunday we began a brand new series of messages, a, a series that's going to take us uh, right up until Christmas time, assuming we stay on course, which is always a, a question to be determined. Uh, but this series is called We Are a Church. We are a church, and I explained very briefly to you last week that it just seemed like, given a lot of what our church has gone through in the last couple of years, and given the fact that God seems to be moving us toward a, a, an outward focus and ministering to our community, at the same time, we need to be looking inward and understand who we are and what we're all about and why belonging, not just attending, but belonging to a local church is so Vital, And so this morning we're going to take our first real step in that direction here in 1 John chapter 4. And I'm going to read the passage for you, uh, with you in just a moment. 
But before I do, I want you to do something else first, because in your bulletin, hopefully you were given a bulletin when you came in this morning, and if not, perhaps the person next to you uh, was, and you can look over their shoulder. But in your bulletin this morning is a sheet of paper that looks like this. It is called the Maranatha Bible Church Covenant of Fellowship. And so along with 1 John 4 open before you, I want you to grab a copy of this or look over the shoulder of someone who has it. Because this is a tool, the Maranatha Bible Church Covenant of Fellowship, that we use, and many of you know this because you've been through it, that we use in our membership curriculum, our church membership course and curriculum, to express what it means in practical terms to belong to this particular church family. Now, I told you last week, I said it very, very, at least I hope I made it very, very clear, and I intend to reaffirm it today and periodically again throughout this series. This is not a sermon series about membership. This is not designed in any way, shape, or form to convince you, if you're not a member already, to get your name on the membership roll. It's really, I said last week, not even a, a, a series about church attendance, but it is a series about belonging. And, and what I want to do, as we began to discuss last week, is, is help you, help me, help us together to begin to discern the very real and vast difference that exists between merely attending a church every Sunday and genuinely belonging to that church family. And if this is not your church family, you were our guest today from elsewhere, I really believe that everything I'm going to talk about applies to you and wherever it is God has placed you in a church home as well. So this is not a series about church membership. However, as I hinted last week, the 12 commitments that are that are spelled out, that are listed on this particular covenant of fellowship are going to serve as an outline for our series from here until Christmas time. There are 12 things listed here. Those are the themes. They're not quite the big idea, but close. Of the next 12 sermons, you're going to hear me and a couple of others preach. And the reason that these are the things we ask people to do, men and women and even young people to do, if they truly consider Maranatha their church home, is because we view them, when I say we, the pastors and elders, those who put this together, we believe the things articulated in this document is each and every one a biblically rooted, supremely practical commitment that you and I all ought to be willing to make if we genuinely consider this our church family. These are commitments, member or not, that all of us should be willing to make to the people we worship with each and every Sunday. In other words, what I'm trying to say by way of introduction is this, that when around here we say we are a church, this is exactly what we mean. Now, last week I told you that before we can even talk about the commitments there are some essential building blocks that we all have to have in place. So there are three things that ultimately have to be settled if anyone's going to truly belong, if anyone is going to truly belong to any church. Before we can start making practical commitments, we've got to get our spiritual heart and house in order as well. If you weren't here, I will tell you what they are. If you were, I will remind you that they are, number one, saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to belong to a church, you first of all have to belong to the church. Saving faith in Jesus Christ. I said to you secondly that from saving faith in Jesus Christ ought to flow a fixed commitment to corporate worship. I belong to this body. I should show up with this body. I should be present in this body, this gathering of believers, however big or small they may be. And from there, what we hope God begins to do, the third essential building block, I said, is to cultivate a passion, a passion for doing life together. 
with the people in the pews and the seats around me. And I said to you last Sunday, and I'll affirm it again, if those three things aren't settled, nothing else matters. Nothing else I'm going to say to you today matters until those are settled first. But once they are, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. You've committed yourself to a local church, yes, with all of its imperfections. And you've begun to say, I'm going to try to begin doing life together. Here's the first thing we ask for, and this is why I ask you to pull out the covenant of fellowship. The first commitment we call each one of us, myself included, to make, right there, line number one is this, to walk together in Christian love. The first commitment we ask each and every one of us to make, just look at the screen and say it with me, to walk together in Christian love. And, and that's a, a commitment, that's a lifestyle that's expressed many different places in the New Testament, many different places in the Word of God. But I happen to believe there may be no clearer or more dynamic presentation of it than where I've asked you to turn this morning here in 1 John chapter 4. So if you grab your Bible and follow along, I'm going to begin reading this morning in 1 John 4, 7. I'm going to read through verse 21, and we're going to talk about it because this is what the Word of God says. John begins, Beloved, loved ones. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected or made complete in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he's given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Now, and very quickly, before we dig into exactly what that means, the practical applications and implications of what John is trying to say here, there are two very important fundamental things I want to get on the table first to make sure we're working with the same language and the same definition. So very quickly, I want to point out two things, and then we'll get into what this looks like in the life of a church such as ours. The first thing, number one, I want to make sure we're clear on, that I'm clear on as I speak and that you are as you listen, is the, the nature of Number one, the instruction that John is giving here. The instruction that the Apostle John gives, which is stated very plainly, very succinctly in the first line of verse 7, looking at your Bible. Beloved, loved ones, let us love one another. Now, that seems very clear. 
That seems very plain, and it is. However, at the same time, it's imperative to remember that the Apostle John, who wrote these words, was writing as a believer in Jesus Christ, we know that, to a particular group of believers in Jesus Christ. We believe he wrote this to a specific local church, spoken to them, relevant to all, but he's a believer in Jesus, writing to other believers in Jesus who worship together on a regular basis. And the, the reason we need to make sure we're clear on that is because in the next couple of lines, he draws a distinction. He's talking to believers, and this is what he says. Look again at your Bible. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, there are people who see this differently. I'm going to tell you what I think, and I believe John is saying. I believe what John is saying here is this. Among those who have a genuine saving relationship with Jesus Christ, those born of God, he's writing to a church, he's writing to believers, he's saying among those born of God, there are some who love and others who don't. There are some believers who love and love well, there are some believers who don't love or don't love well. And the difference is determined by whether or not you know God in a relational way. Not have a saving relationship, but you live your life relating to him. And the better you know him, the better you love. The less you know him, the less you'll love. The more time you spend with him, the better you'll be able to love others. That's what I believe he's saying here. The, no, the word know he uses here, it's a relational sort of knowledge. In verse 7, he says, you're born of God. The ones who love are born of God and they know God. The one who doesn't love doesn't know God in this relational kind of way. And therefore, the more time, here's the, here's the implication, the more time you spend with Jesus, the richer your love for fellow believers will be. I believe that's what he's saying here. Otherwise, why would he have to command it? Beloved, let us love one another. If, if he didn't have to command, he'd just say, beloved, we love each other. But the fact is, sometimes we don't. So he has to command it or instruct it to us. That's the instruction. Make a choice, brother. Make a choice, sister, to love one another. That goes to the second clarifying point I want to give you. Because the world we live in defines love in a million different ways. What kind of love are we talking about here? What kind of love does John mean? We need to be clear. And he tells us in the next couple of verses. When he gives us, having given us the instruction, let us love one another, he provides the motivation with which and through which we should do it. Second thing I want you to see is the motivation. Because what we need to understand about love is contrary to our culture's idea, those who are willing to concede that there is a God out there somewhere. Contrary to even what we may hear from many churches and many pulpits, and I'm not picking on people, I'm not naming names, I'm just saying there is a, a sense out there that when people, culturally speaking, socially speaking, speak about the love of God, they're talking about some sort of airy-fairy, warmth in my heart, quiver in my liver sort of emotional feeling... It's something I feel, singing the bridge between verse 3 and verse 4, it strikes me in the moment, the love of God, it's intangible, but it feels so nice. And that is not at all what John says about the love of God here. He says the love of God is not an airy, fairy, intangible, ethereal thing, it's concrete. It is specific. It is particular. And it has been shown to us 
in an act, a tangible, real-time act of unsurpassed sacrifice. The world has lots of ideas. The church, when it talks about the love of God, here's how God defines it. Look at your Bible, verse 9. By this, everybody say, by this. Not by anything else. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. God sent his only begotten son into the world. Is that a tangible act? Yes, it is. He sent his son into the world to be something, the propitiation son of the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, verse 10. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son for a particular reason, to be the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sin. And he says, John says, that is where you are to find your motivation. And that is where I am to find mine, to love one another. Look at verse 11. So, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And I believe it's when, and only when we're clear on those two things, the commandment we are to love one another, the motivation, God has shown us tangible love in an unsurpassed act of sacrifice, then we're ready to actually talk about and consider how you're supposed to love me, and I'm supposed to love you. And that's what we want to look at in the rest of our time together this morning. And the rest of our time, here's what I want to get to you. I'm going to do my best to speak it, you're going to do your best to hear it, and then we're all going to do our best to go home and apply it and come back and do it again next Sunday. Because here's what I believe John is saying in practical terms. I believe when when we talk about walking together in Christian love, I believe what John is telling us in this passage is that being called to love in the local church means at least four things. Being called to love, to walk together in Christian love in the context of a local church, it could certainly mean more, but it certainly doesn't mean less than the following four things. And these are four commitments. I'm going to give them to you in the first person because I need to apply them. I want you to write them down or remember them in the first person for yourself because you need to remember them because they are as follows. Number one. Being called to love each other in the local church, to walk together in Christian love, first of all means, according to John, I will take the initiative toward you. In our relationships in the local church, I will take the initiative toward you. Because isn't that exactly what we're told God did here? Again, look in your Bible. We're going to spend a lot of time in these verses this morning. Verse 9, by this, the love of God was manifested in us. God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. He's saying God has expressed his love in a tangible action, but before it was an action, you know what it was? An idea. It was an idea. At some point in eternity past, that's the best way we're able to express it, but at some point in eternity past, before he spoke the world and the universe into existence, God had an idea. And and I realize there's probably a better theological way to explain it than that, but God had an idea. I'm going to save lost sinners. I'm I'm going to send my son into the world to save lost sinners, rescue them from sin. I am going to take the initiative to solve a problem they don't even know they have yet. I'm going to do it for their sake. And if if we miss that message in verse 9, John repeats it again in verse 19. He says, we love, and the reason we love is because he, what's the next word? Verse 19. What is it? He first loved us. 
What we need to see as we read through the scriptures and specifically as we dig into this passage is that God's love is an initiating love. God's love always takes the initiative. God always moves first. Therefore, if you and I, as we sit here this morning, want not merely to attend but ultimately belong to a local church, Maranatha, if that's your home, wherever else it is if you're our guest this morning, we need to live our lives in similar fashion. We need to love the way he has loved us. We need to be people who take the initiative. And while it's not always easy, can I tell you something this morning? It's incredibly simple. It is not complicated to take initiative. For example, in a recent essay titled, I love the title of this, Make Sunday Morning Uncomfortable. (laughs) Make Sunday Morning Uncomfortable by Rebecca McLaughlin. I urge every single one of you to go look it up after church and read it today. Make Sunday Morning Uncomfortable by Rebecca McLaughlin at DesiringGod.org. She says that in her church, and I want you to think about this in practical terms with me for just a moment. She says that in her church, quote, an alone person... Sitting alone, standing alone, walking in the door alone is an emergency situation. An alone person is an emergency situation. And she said, in our church, the philosophy is this, that that situation needs to be as urgently and swiftly remedied as if someone collapses of cardiac arrest in the foyer. We rush to that person to see how we can minister to them. And she said, so if we see somebody sitting alone, we see somebody standing alone, we see somebody walking around looking like they don't know what they're doing alone, we are willing to interrupt the conversation with a friend we waited all week to see because that's an emergency situation. Somebody needs the love of God. Somebody needs to be told and shown they matter. Somebody needs to see initiating love in action. I was very convicted reading this article. You will be too, but I want you to read it anyway. And we need to do that. We need to have that kind of mentality if we're going to belong to the body of Christ, whether that alone person is a first-time guest or they've been here for 15 years. If they're sitting alone, if they're standing alone. It's just a simple way. See, it, it may not be easy. It may make you uncomfortable. It may make them uncomfortable. They may like being alone. But even so, we're going to go to them. And we're going to minister to them. We're going to take the initiative. Why? Because that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. If I want to belong to the local church, If I want to walk in Christian love, I, like you, need to love in a way that takes initiative. That's the first thing John says here. The second is like it. It's similar in many ways, but unique as well. Loving each other in the local church means, number one, I will take the initiative toward you. Secondly, it means I will make sacrifices for you. It means I will make sacrifices for you, and you will sacrifice for me. You know, one Saturday morning about a month ago, I rolled in here about 9.15. I come every Saturday morning for a couple, three hours, prep for Sunday, clean things up, figure out what in the world I'm actually going to say to you uh, uh, here uh, on Sunday. A Saturday morning about 9.15, I walked in the office, and usually I'm the only one here when that happens. But on this particular day when I opened the office door, I found one of our deacons in the offices. And he was replacing light fixtures and, and light bulbs in all of our offices, and, and I, was, I was encouraged by that, kind of took me by surprise. And when, when I asked him, I said, hey, you just getting started? He said, oh, no, no, no. He said, I've been here a while. I said, how long? He said, 5.30. On a Saturday morning, he's at church fixing light bulbs. And I thought about that. And I thought, you know, I'm amazed, but I'm not surprised. 
I'm amazed by that kind of commitment, but I'm not surprised at all. Because one of the perks of working here, and I think the other members of the staff would say the same thing, is we see stuff like this happen all the time. We see people serving in sacrificial ways all the time. We see tech guys who show up after putting their kids to bed in the evening and stay here till well after midnight, fixing a sound system so it sounds good on Sunday morning. We see women who drop by during the week to spruce up a nursery or clean up a Sunday school classroom or paint a wall, do something that, that shows that good enough is not good enough, that we want it to be excellent when our children come to meet with us as a church family on Sunday morning. We see it in the people who show up without being prompted to pull weeds or wash windows. We see it in the people who periodically stop in the office and they said, I heard a need. And, and I, don't want, I don't want the person with the need to know it was me, but here's some cash, here's some groceries, here's some clothes, here's something. Would you make sure they get I don't want them to know it was me, but I want to make sure the need is met. I see in a worship team that comes every Thursday evening, they practice for a couple of hours, and they're right back here at 7.30 on Sunday morning, devoting their whole morning to making sure we can sing God's praise together. And of course, I've seen it in spades this week in particular, with the incessant, constant offers of help and provision and prayer for Greg and Vivian as they've gone to, to take care of their daughter who God's miraculously saved. What can I do? How can I help? I'll do anything. I've, I've heard that so many. I'll do anything it takes to make sure they're taken care of. That's sacrifice. Listen, I'm not saying unbelievers don't do nice things too. <laughs> I'm not saying their acts of charity don't matter. But what I am saying is this. When that kind of thing is kind of sort of normal... It's, it's just kind of how we roll across the board. Not perfectly. We miss needs all the time. And if we've missed yours, I am sorry. But when more often than not, there are people stepping up to meet pressing needs, to make sacrifice, to fill a gap, to, to serve in, in an empty place. When that's normal and, and how we roll. And, and ultimately, as I said a moment ago, nobody really cares who gets the credit. You know you're not going to be on the news, but you're not going to be in the bulletin either. To me, that's evidence of a of a family that has been gripped by the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we love because he first loved us. As, as I have loved you, love one another. Because they'll know we are Christians, right? By our, by our love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What does love look like in the local church? What does it mean to walk together in Christian love? It means, number one, I'll take the initiative toward you. It means, number two, I will make sacrifices for you. It means, number three, and I want you to hang with me on this one. It means, thirdly, that I will believe the best about you. I will believe the best about you. And I know that sounds a little touchy-feely. Sounds a little something, maybe not, not quite as, as solid as the first couple. But I think it's here in the passage as well. You know, I often tell people, and I don't mean this in any sort of a, a proud way whatsoever, know my heart, but I often tell people that you, you give me a week to prepare and I can stand up here and talk about almost anything, right? You give me 20 hours to write down what I want to say, I can probably get up and, and, and make some sort of coherent sense. And what I've learned about myself through that is that therefore when I say something profound in the moment, I know it was Jesus. I know it wasn't me because I don't come up with profound stuff on my own. And I was thinking about that this week because I was reminded of a conversation I had with one of my sons last summer, my son who got married. And 
A couple of months before that, we were kind of having a heart-to-heart. I called him one night to just talk about the wedding and, and how things were going, and, and, and just in a very transparent moment, I'm not going to tell any secrets, but he was just sharing with me the natural hopes and fears he had about married life, about what's going to come our way, and, and, and what's that going to be like, and he was saying, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit sobered, nervous by this commitment. And in a moment, and I knew this was Jesus because I'd never had the thought before, I said, well, you know, Luke, I said, love always involves risk. Love is always a risk. And the more we're willing to love someone, the greater the risks will be. Now, the greater the rewards will be as well. But the more you open your heart to someone, the greater the risk that they're going to hurt you and that they will. And, uh, and I've been thinking about that a lot ever since because it's true. And, and when I take that, that thought, I believe that fact into the context that at church, I realize that's why we hold each other at a distance most Sundays. It's why we put on, if not our physical, our spiritual Sunday best. It's why you've walked in here many times, perhaps more often than not, wearing a mask. It's fine. It's okay. It's good. I'm, I'm it, right. Yeah. Yep. Praise Jesus. Let's sing. It's why we don't let people in. Why? Because to love is to risk, and risk means pain. And I'm not sure that's what I want on Sunday morning with the people I worship with. That's why we keep our guard up here. It's because some of us have been hurt in church before. And so maybe there's even legitimate reasons. But even all that being said, if that's true and you know it is, how do we explain verse 18? Look in your Bible at verse 18. Because this is what John says, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There is no what? No what? There is no fear in love. Because perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Now I realize, and maybe you do too, the main application of verse 18, it's talking about you as a believer in your relationship with God. Experiencing his perfect love should cast out fear. And the degree to which you fear God in an unhealthy way that he's going to do you harm and he's going to leave you hanging is due to a lack of apprehension, a lack of embracing the reality of his love for you because his love is perfect. And even when harm comes our way, we're told that he cares for us and disciplines us as a father. That's the primary application here. It's a failure to understand his love for us. Why? Because fear involves punishment. And because of Jesus, you're not going to be punished. And neither am I. But I also believe, on the strength of this passage, that's a principle that applies between us, right? There is no fear in love. And perfect love, and by perfect it means complete, maturing, growing love, casts out fear. Because think about this. If I believe that I can't love you as a fellow believer, if you're convinced I can't love him, and you know who that is, I I can't walk together in love with her, and you know who she is. I mean, to make it painfully simple, it's because of one of three reasons. There's an unresolved conflict from the past. There's there's an issue that's come between you in the present, or you're afraid they're going to do you harm in the future. One of those three things. And now, sometimes that's legitimate. Sometimes we have unresolved conflict. Sometimes we have present strife. Sometimes there are things going on and we say, hey, that doesn't seem right. I think if this continues down that track, sometimes it's legitimate. But you know what about, what's true about those legitimate things? The Bible has a prescription for dealing with every single one of them. 
There's a biblical way to deal with unresolved hurt. There's a biblical way to deal with present conflict. There's a biblical way to deal with future fears. But sometimes what we fear and what keeps us from a willingness to love one another, quite frankly, is all in our head. It's not rooted in truth. I, I saw the look you gave me. I, 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 I perceived the, your, your body language on the way into the sanctuary. Somebody said something they read in an email that they found on a blog that, that you said this about me and I said that. And, and all of a sudden, what have I done? I've decided in my heart that you're out to get me. <laughs> that you're going to hurt me that I can't love you. And it's not rooted in truth at all. How often is it in our head I've decided you have it in for me, and so now I fear you, and I consequently can't love you. Uh, here's what happened. An unfounded fear has cast out love, but what's the Bible say? It says it's the other way around. Perfect love, growing love, maturing love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. And, and here's what I'm wondering. Here's the implied question. How much more would our sense of belonging grow? Would your sense of not just attending, but belonging to the church grow if in a spirit of love, and love means risk, you started, this became our starting place. I'm going to choose to believe the best about you. I'm not going to start in a 10-foot hole that you've got to dig out of to earn my trust. I'm going to choose to believe the best. Now, if it goes sour, we'll figure it out. But we'll start by believing not the worst, but the best. We'll start not with suspicion, but with expectation. I think that's exactly what we're being called to here. How about I do that for you and you do that for me and we can learn to walk in Christian love together. Because loving one another in the local church means I'll take the initiative before you, number one. It means I will make sacrifices for you, number two. It means I will choose to believe the best about you, number three. Fourth and finally, we'll pull it together with this. It means I am going. I am going to make the choice to walk beside you. Not ahead of you not behind you, beside you. If you think about it, the most common way most of us express our relationship with Jesus as believers, probably the most familiar metaphor is that of a walk, right? We talk about our walk with the Lord. There's old hymns, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I'm his own. Those are from things called hymns that some of you are not familiar with. But we used to sing songs like that as God's people, but, but we describe it that way all the time. How's your walk with Jesus? Are you walking with the Lord? Uh, I haven't been walking. So we have this, this metaphor, this word picture in our mind of a relationship with Jesus is described in terms of a walk. And in fact, if you read the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it's one of his favorite words of all. He uses it all the time, our walk with the Lord. But think about what we're saying when we use that language. We are saying, we are, we are daring to suggest when I talk about my walk with the Lord and you talk about yours, that the holy, righteous, infinite, eternal, sovereign, just, perfect, almighty, consuming fire God wants to hang around with the likes of you and the likes of me and that he actually enjoys it. Almighty God walks with me. And he walks with you. And the reason that should astonish us is because you know where you go and what you look at. 
and listen to and talk about. And so do I. And yet, what does the Bible say? He's always with us. He never forsakes us. He never says, you've gone this far, no farther. I'm out. Jesus walks with me even when I don't deserve it, and I don't deserve it most of the time. But he sticks with us in a walk. So what gives me the right to not do the same for you? What gives you the right to not do the same with somebody else in the room this morning? Why? Because, beloved, if he so loved us, we ought to love one another. doesn't mean we're best friends. doesn't mean I'm going to be your weekly prayer partner, but we have to walk together in Christian love. Because if Jesus will do that for me, and I'm supposed to live the love of Jesus out, then I need to be willing to do that for you. After all, verse 20, if someone says, I love God, hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother or sister also. The truth, writes John Stott, is plain. Every claim to love God is a delusion if it is not accompanied by an unselfish and practical love for one another, which doesn't come naturally. It's a choice prompted and empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's a choice. I am going to walk beside you. I will aim to walk beside you. I'm not always going to get it right, but that's the direction I have chosen. And it's a a choice, a decision we have to constantly make over and over and over again if we're not just going to attend but truly belong to this or any other body of believers. I'm going to walk beside you. Now, with all of that said, and before we close, I want you to look at your covenant of fellowship one more time. Just grab that sheet. And I want you to hang on to this for the weeks to come. The reason I want you to look at it one more time, and I'm going to give you the big idea, pray, and we'll be done, is because before we close, I want you to look at the single most important line in this document. And it's this. It's right below the opening paragraph, which you can go home and read on your own time, and it's right before the statement, the commitment we've just talked about today, and it is this. I hereby agree by the help of the Holy Spirit. I hereby agree to do all of these things by the help of the Holy Spirit. And you know why that's the most important line in this statement? Because you can't do, and I can't do any of this stuff alone. I can't do one, much less all 12 of these things, unless the Spirit of God is working within me. We cannot walk together in Christian love or do anything else on this list apart from the indwelling presence and surrender to God's Holy Spirit. But thankfully, here's what the Bible tells us, that the one who calls also equips. The one who instructs also fills. And you know what that means? It means we can walk together in Christian love at Maranatha Bible Church. You can belong. You can belong. And that's why the big idea of the message this morning is that Christ truly has enabled us to love everybody in this room. Jesus Christ has enabled you to love every single person in this room and walk with them as a family. Father, the things that are true are not always easy. Father, the instruction of your word is often clear and yet at the same time impossible. Impossible. 
And Father, for as much as we sing and talk and dream about love, as soon as it becomes reality, it's hard. It involves risk. But Father, you, it says, showed your love for us in the supreme sacrifice of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your love initiated, your love sacrificed, your love saw us for what we could never be forgiven and cleansed, new creations. And then what did Jesus do? He came and he walked among us. Father, if you so loved us, we want to learn and choose to love one another the same way. Father, we are a church. We meet in the same building. We pass the same sign. We sing the same songs and hear the same sermons. But Father, church is more than that, and we want to be more than that. We want to be a body, a family, Father, that cares well for one another, but is always willing to welcome more. Father, help us today, even before we leave, to walk together in Christian love as we should. Father, take the things of truth that have been spoken here and seal them to our hearts. Take all the rest and let it be forgotten so that our our fixation as we leave is on Christ alone, in whose name we pray.